Hello, and welcome to this next exciting episode of Pulp Today. I am your host, David Avalone, taking a sip of something. Unlike uh, Dean Martin, I'm not going to lie to you, this actually is ginger ale. Because it's early on a Sunday and I'm not, at the moment, drinking on the Lord's Day. There is no Lord's Day. A lot of times, um, I'll talk about books on this uh, podcast, on this show, that are very famous. No one needs me to, to tell them that they should read The Maltese Falcon at this late date, I hope. But every once in a while, I, I do get a chance to talk about a writer who I think nobody remembers or is not remembered as much as he should be. And today we're talking about William Eastlake, who wrote, among other things, this great book, Castle Keep. This is the movie edition cover. Like all World War II movies, everyone in the book is a good 30 years younger than the actors playing them. Um, but what I'm going to read you describes the character played by Burt Lancaster, and even though he's too old, it's a pretty good piece of casting. Eastlake was a novelist. He was a veteran of the Second World War, and in fact a veteran who was wounded at the Battle of the Bulge, which is when this the historical event this book is around. But it's a very odd book, and he was a very interesting writer. He did not write straight war novels by by any uh, by any token. Uh, the next book, book he wrote after this called uh, The Bamboo Bed, which is about Vietnam, is an amazing, crazy classic. And I don't know that I've read or experienced anything about the Vietnam War in that same vein other than Apocalypse Now. And I would say it's even more surreal than Apocalypse Now. And Castle Keep, also pretty surreal. I think you could you could place it in a similar context to catch 22 but it's less catch 22 to me seems to be a satire of the army and of the kind of people you meet in the military and of the absurdity of uh of war uh castle keep has some slightly different things on its mind it's a little more interested in the psychology of the characters and in the idea uh, what is war about, and what are you, what are you defending, and what are you destroying in order to maybe defend the very thing that you're destroying? Uh, if that's not too roundabout a way to put it, another companion piece to this book would be the movie uh, The Train, because it shares with it a preoccupation with, as I just said, the the way war destroys all of the things that you're you're supposed to be protecting. In The Train, it's a train full of art objects of fabulous art that's been looted from a French museum and is being sent back to Nazi Germany and uh, the Allied commandos, also Burt Lancaster, want to blow up the train and destroy all the art and the the irony is of course well if you destroy all this French art what exactly was the war all about? Uh, Castle Keep has that same preoccupation um, but it'll it'll speak for itself pretty well. One thing that the the book does is it's multiple narrators, each maybe a little more unreliable than the previous one. The first narrator is Captain Lionel Beckman, uh, who will tell you a lot about himself in the next few pages. The bitch. Both of them naked. The bitch. Yes, Captain Beckman? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't know. You'll learn, Beckman. Major Falconer lit a cigarette 
and one for the Duke's wife, too, naked. I'll see you up on the tower, Captain Beckman. Yes, sir. When Major Falconer joined me on top, on the castle battlement, he was all dressed and militant, impeccable except for his eyes. His eye. Major Falconer had lost one on the beach at Utah. Still, all of us, that's why we're at the castle. Why we had been sent to the castle as a replacement company to service replacements. Maybe it's why later we held the castle. All of us had been hit badly. But remember, we were all young, so you would think we would have believed Major Falconer when he said we could stop the whole damn German army at this castle. But I wasn't that young. I had got mine at Saint-Lô. I had been on top of the church steeple with a white flag trying to keep our bombers from destroying it because I was an art historian. There I was on top of the cathedral steeple in Saint-Lô, but there was a overcast and the American bombardiers probably didn't see the town, let alone the church or me. It was after that the American army began to suspect that they might get on with the winning the war without me, without an art historian. And of course that's why I didn't want Major Falconer to defend this castle, because it would be destroyed. This castle was a classic example, 10th century, a perfect castle. Then of course any sane man would realize it could not be held. Falconer's problem why he maybe ended up here at the castle commanding a replacement company, why he had lost his command in the infantry, lost his eye, too, and that piece of jaw, was that he had refused command, refused the security of the command post, and, like a corporal, more like a private first class, he had been up there on the point with the infantry where he could look down the German throat with a bayonet. So now he was going to command a castle from the ramparts. He was going to commit a castle in the manner he had never committed troops. But, by God, we were inside, part of the castle and part of the offering, too. It was six in the morning and beginning to get light. I don't think Falconer ever closed that one eye. Under the star shells when he joined me, that's when he warned me again about an attack, a German breakthrough. An improbable night, a very improbable story, too, how the Germans were going to smash through right here one day, one week, because the Ardennes front was lightly held. The Germans' aggressive patrolling and those lights lighting us like a fairy castle all fitted in with Falconer's obsession, his sense of foreboding, his doom before a stampede. Remember, Falconer was an Indian, a cowboy, a rancher, I guess. Anyway, he had this spread in New Mexico surrounded by Indian country. But Falconer, the major, looked more like a wounded buffalo. Now he had selected a spot that would be good for killing if they would come to him. A good place to defend. The castle. And then Falconer turned on me sharply, as though on a horse pivoting and reached down. He was that big, without a horse. And said quietly out of his stricken face, Let's go, Captain Beckman. Let's go. We descended the staircase, Major Falconer with just sidearms and those huge binoculars and me with my slung carbine, descended those great sweeping marbled caves to the pink drawing room, soldiers descending a staircase. And there she was. The pink room is where the two Botticellis were, the Delacroix and the three Fragonards. There she was, the Duke's wife, Teresa. Daughter it could have been. She was half the Duke's age and we were all young. That young. You would think the Duke would have kept her locked up. They had a separate wing in the chateau, the new part that crowded the moat. The duke could have used that moat. In his stables, he always kept the mares separated from the stallions. Every night you could hear the stallions in the stables kicking like all artillery. He could have used the moat, but he seemed to be giving us a bad time. It could have been that he was that proud, the moat that wide. 
When we got downstairs, Teresa's father, I mean, her husband, the Duke, was there. He was really a count, but he looked like a Duke. Erect and spare, like an old polished sword, but unbending, fragile, and hard. I don't know why Falconer permitted him at the conference. Thought he was harmless, I guess. He, the Duke, was supposed to be on our side, and so was I, but the Duke and I had talked about it a lot. The castle could be saved. In all the murder and destruction, something of beauty could remain. How could the war have any meaning if it wasn't to preserve... Falconer was in front of the map he had nailed alongside the Delacroix, pointing with a fifty caliber machine gun cleaning rod at the point the Germans would punch through if they ever attacked, moving the rod through Verviers, Spa, Malmedy, and St. Croix. That was our village, our castle village. From our castle overlooking these important crossroads, Major Falconer said the German advance could be blunted. Blunted, I thought, was a good word. But what about... But Falconer wasn't listening. He was saying, if at every strong point along the German advance, islands of American resistance can form, we can make the Germans pay enough for every kilometer. Major Falconer, I said, I have a question. Since Falconer dropped the cleaning rod on a Louis Quinn's chair, what was it, Beckman? Sir, it occurred to me that we would be more valuable if we could fall back to the holding line that will be forming in our rear somewhere along the Meuse River, sir. And saving the castle has nothing to do with your strategy? Frankly, it does, sir. That is a business about which I understand nothing. But, sir, it's not a bit... Gentlemen, that is all, Major Falconer said. But I haven't told you who the gentlemen that Falconer were talking to now, and moving along about the map. Next to the Duke was Sergeant Rossi. He was quite a gentleman. And between the Corot and the Bougereau was a Lieutenant Amberjack, then Captain Frank. Incidentally, it was a very bad Bougereau. All Beaujolais are bad, but those must have been his worst. It was fortunately destroyed early in the shelling. It hung next to that perfect Corot that came through all right. There is justice. But Falconer didn't help. I thought I'd better salvage things right now with our German prisoners by getting the fragile outside sculpture down in the underground wine cellars. I had been working on this for some time, but there were a lot of them. Frank, Rossi, and Amberjack and the rest of the placement company would ordinarily be off to town now, but there were no replacements to service. The 106th had taken the last we had. They would have to hold up there with what we had. We didn't have any more. We had nothing more to give. Our company had been defending itself, as the French say. Rossi, by taking over the baker's wife. That's what he did in civilian life. I mean, he was a baker. Captain Frank, I believe, was farther gone than the rest of us. His wound was a little more secret, so since Omaha Beach, he had taken a hiding in the music room at the castle organ where he was invulnerable. Lieutenant Amberjack didn't agree with Major Falconer either. He looked too young for the war, much too young for the trouble he was in. In the hedgerows of Normandy, he had lost too many men and was hit too often himself. Now he was driving a salient into La Rang Rouge, a brothel in St. Croix where the walking wounded went. If the men had moved quickly toward an objective, I don't think I would have lost a single man, not anyway as many as I did. As I said, we were all in that pink drawing room of the castle and the rest of the company was getting ready to take off the town to their private war in town. I had my personal war, too. I had to save what was left. This country had been fought over two or three times in the last few months and there wasn't much left. This castle was left and the things I wanted to save. Did I tell you she was a bitch? Another secret. 
when Teresa and Falconer were lying there naked with that pale, dusty cathedral light from the stained-glass castle window painting their bodies in dark-leaded shadows, and all of the castle hushed in a baited stillness. Then I felt it. I felt jealousy slice through me like a steel knife. And remember, despite the ancient castle, this cannot be a gothic tale, because it was the Second World War. And remember, too, God was dead, killed with the first shot. I mean, he's a tremendous writer, and that's a great book. Uh, <laughs> there is a movie. Sidney Pollack directed it in his I Really Want to Be Federico Fellini When I Grow Up period. And it is a fascinating mess. It has an amazing cast. The aforementioned Sergeant Rossi is Peter Falk. Uh, Captain Beckman is, oh, I'm going to space on his name now, Patrick O'Neill? I think Patrick O'Neill. And the Duke is a great French actor. I think it's Jean-Pierre Aumont. Maybe Jean-Pierre Aumont. What does the book say? Jean-Pierre Aumont. Scott Wilson is in it. Tony, Tony Bill. It's really terrific. It's got a crazy late 1960s score by Michel Legrand with a lot of choral scatting. It's nuts. Uh, but I recommend the movie, I recommend the book, and I recommend Eastlake's Vietnam novel, The Bamboo Bed. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to Pulp Today. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.